Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My voice. Do you hear that? It's a little hoarse. That's because I've been on the road doing lectures and in-person events. And I'm going to do another one at Berkeley on November 18th at 7 p.m. I'd love if you came out to it. The link to get tickets is in the show notes for this episode. It'll also be at youarenotsosmart.com. I'm happy to sort of round out this first of probably two or three of these tours around the country, around the world. I'm going to go to the UK and do another one of these to promote How Minds Change, to tell people all about my new book, How Minds Change, which, by the way, it's briefly out of print and being printed again. Yes, a second printing already because it's sold out. (laughs) Every single copy of this book in physical form has sold. So thank you so incredibly. Uh, I can't accept that and understand it and believe it, but it's getting in there. And I guess that's sort of on brand for the topic that the book covers. But also don't worry. uh, Amazon says there are no uh, delays. No one's going to have a delayed copy. They're printing them very quickly. Also, another piece of news for anyone in the UK or anyone who is in a territory covered by the UK, the audiobook is now available in your territory. Many people have emailed and sent tweets to me saying, why can't we get your audiobook? You can now. So check back in any service that you attempted before. The audiobook should be available now. Okay, yes. Come see me at the Berkeley Olympic, November 18th, 7 p.m., at all the previous events, New York, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Houston, Memphis, Scottsdale. The Q&As have been very long, and I usually went over time for how long they gave me to speak. I look forward to doing that again. I'll see you there. All right, let's start the show. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 246. The thing, as long as you don't do anything, you can delude yourself that I have good ideas if I ever get around to them. Yeah. Well, the reason that few of us break through is because we have a profound misunderstanding of creativity. We have a profound misunderstanding of the way that problems get solved. And so if you write a book about breaking through and about problem solving, you become painfully acutely aware of the cognitive biases that hold us back. Both of those clips are from later on in the interview with Jeremy Utley, the author of a new book, Idea Flow, which he co-authored with Perry Claibon. Jeremy is the director of executive education at Stanford's D School and an adjunct professor at Stanford School of Engineering. 
He's also the co-host of the D-School's widely popular program, Stanford's Masters of Creativity, which I was very lucky to be invited to appear on as I was promoting my own book, How Minds Change. Had a lot of fun there. In fact, we did this pre-show sort of interview, get to know each other thing that just went on and on and on. And we spun off into so many different tangents. I was like, you should come on the podcast and we should do this again. He said, actually, I have a book coming out called Idea Flow and we could talk about that. And then, you know, if we talk about a bunch of other stuff, could be a cool show. So we did. This episode has all sorts of interesting twists and turns in it. We talk about peanut butter pumps and garbage fountains and why you should never wait for inspiration and the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. It's uh, really cool stuff because his book, Idea Flow, is about how to create a system within any institution, organization, or just within your own self if you're just a single content producing person to create lots and lots of ideas, throw away the ones that suck and zero in on the ones that are great. And he calls this practice idea flow. And you should trust this person telling you these things because the D school, which he's director of executive education for the D school and his co-author is the co-founding member of the D school's faculty. This is a really interesting place. The D school, well, he'll explain it to you in a minute, but know that it comes from an incredible source, and I really enjoy the conversation. The more time I spent with him and his uh, peers there and with the organization itself, the more I felt like, okay, this is a place doing something very important. And they took all the lessons they learned there, not just from the D School, but also from other things within the D School, like the Launchpad Accelerator Program, which we talk about, and combined them into a book that says, okay, maybe you haven't been to the D School, but you can get a lot of the insights from what we've been doing there over the years by reading this book. And it comes down to a couple of really simple ideas. Basically, ideas matter. That's the idea in the book that matters most is that ideas matter. And to get ideas to do what you want them to do, you need to create a garbage fountain of ideas. Or as Stephen King writes about this a lot, where he says he, he imagines a sieve in his brain, a colander, where he throws a big chunk of bread, which is all the ideas he has, and as it dissolves away, only the good chunks remain. You need some sort of system for doing that. And instead of focusing on output, you should focus on input instead. Instead of focusing on quality, generate quantity, and then have a system for sorting that quantity. And I love all of this. Going back to Stephen King, I remember when I was first trying to learn how to get better at writing and reading his own writing book, his only real advice was read a lot, and then write a lot. And then he went into, well, why does that matter? Idea flow, or as I like to put it, the garbage fountain of ideas. And we'll get into all of that right now in this interview with Jeremy Utley, co-author of Idea Flow. I'm, uh, I'm Jeremy Utley. I run executive education at the D School along an amazing team, including my co-author, Perry Claybon. And I also teach a bunch of classes at Stanford. And for the last year and a half, I've been running a pretty uh, exciting program called Stanford's Masters of Creativity, which is a web-based series for folks who are trying to grow in their creative practice who aren't at Stanford. So we've had you know 30 plus sessions, amazing guests such as yourself and many others talk about their experience of bringing new ideas to life in the world. And I just consider myself to be the front row student in the world's coolest classroom there because I'm just I'm learning, which is great. I love it. 
It was such a great group. The mission that you have with that program, with the D school, with all the other stuff that's going on. Uh, I, I didn't realize that I'd like stumbled into the very thing that I was looking for, for the most part, like a, a person from a different background would see all sorts of patterns here. But meeting people like Scott Barry Kaufman and finding people like at the Center for Complexity Science and all these places where people, there are people in the world who are really optimistic about making the world the thing we thought it could be. Mm. And and they're just sort of doing it. If, if you're in the content creation world, you spend a lot of time checking in on social media and trying to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on. And there's a whole lot of, you know, from COVID, of course, but going into COVID, all the, the weirdness of the changing political environment yeah. and the changing information ecosystem, there's just a lot of pessimism, cynicism, and fear and unsettling weirdness around that I see bubbling up to the surface. But I'm also well aware the thing that has the most emotional impact is the thing that's going to be most presented in your media. And we now know from social psychology work that anything that causes outrage or moral uh, concerns or helps you self-identify is going to be rolled into that as we A-B test things. So there's like a sampling error being presented to you on a daily basis of, hey, you know how these are all the bad things that are bad things that you should care about. And a lot of the good stuff, like what you're doing over there is, well, it's just not very well represented if you're- It's overshadowed, unfortunately. We're doing our best to promote it, but what can you do? What can you do in this day and age? You can make shows like this, Jeremy. That's what we can (laughs) That's right. That's what's the idea. And you can be who you are. Like you do a great job. All of your media outreach is incredible. So I, I'm here to boost your signal as much as I can. For people who don't know what, what that is, what is the D School? So the D School is a hub for interdisciplinary collaboration at Stanford University. And what we do is we teach a problem-solving methodology we call design thinking, which is basically enabling the mechanical engineers and MBAs and medical students and lawyers and computer scientists, journalists, et cetera. It's giving them a language for interdisciplinary collaboration because what we find is the problems that are facing us today don't fit neatly in any one disciplinary bucket. They actually require a diversity of perspectives. And yet when diverse teams come together, they don't really have a good language that amplifies their respective contributions. So we teach design thinking as a language for that radical, diverse collaboration. And then all the classes at the D School are kind of by subject areas. There's design in AI, and there's design in climate change. There's a a startup class, and there's a leadership class, and there is a food systems class. But all the classes are kind of geared towards different areas of impact, leveraging the same underlying methodology, which is you put humans first, you generate tons of ideas to get to a breakthrough. You rapidly experiment and get feedback through iterative testing. These are some of the core things that designers have always done that the mechanical engineers and the MBAs and the medical students and the lawyers and the journalists are just learning, oh, I can solve an engineering problem like that or a business problem like that or a policy problem like that. There's implications for every realm of thinking um, of the design-driven approach to new product and service development. Mm-hmm. This sounds like a great idea for a book uh, <laughs> to take some of this stuff and then show it how it could be applied outside of the D school. Uh, before we get into all that, uh, also there's one other thing I saw in, in the material that I wanted people to know about this part of this world. Uh, what is the Launchpad Accelerator Program? So Launchpad is an accelerator that is a class, but it's more than a class. It's a startup uh, incubator of sorts. Myself and my co-author, Perry Claybon, have been running it for the last 
six years or so. Perry ran it for another five or six years prior to my joining him. And it is a gauntlet that gives prospective founders the opportunity to see whether they have what it takes before they leave the school environment. So you can't throw a rock at Stanford without hitting somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur. Everybody, it's just like in the water, it's in the air. And what we do is we say, we're, we're not about you know venture capital necessarily. We're not about huge outcomes necessarily, but we want to give people who are sincerely interested in the entrepreneurial life or giving that a try, we want to equip them with some foundational mindsets and methods to learn quickly whether they want to be working for themselves or whether they want to work for the man or whatever it might be. And so the class is kind of a series of, call it 20 rigorous milestones that we have constructed over the last several years um, to give students a robust confidence that there's the thing that they've imagined is actually worth materializing in the world or to remove that confidence and give them the freedom to go into work without ever wondering, should I have, would I have? Huh. I'd like to know a milestone within there that is one of those like, okay, if this isn't your thing, then this isn't your thing kind of milestone. Like what what was a good example in there? Yeah. Well, I mean, one, one thing you can't get around in entrepreneurship is sales. So you've got to sell your product. And um, I don't, I'm assuming that many prospective students probably won't listen to this. So I'm, I'm going to give away some things and trust that. <laughs> Dude, you can be but very vague if you, if you need to be. No, no, no. I'll be specific. It's fine. And then students who know it are probably still going to fall into the same. We call it a learning trap. They're going to fall into the same trap. But here's the gist. Um, we, in the early stages of the course, we are really focused on product market fit. We're really focused on creating uh, capabilities around experimentation and deploying scrappy, quick experiments to learn. And we do experiments in a number of areas of the business and students are ostensibly supposed to be trying to sell their product, making progress with customers, target market, et cetera. And we get about four or five weeks in and we say, okay, everybody list your sales up on the board, number of dollars since you started working on this venture and everybody lists their sales on the board. And with rare exception, it's pretty low at this point because you know they're still trying to build something. We're still disabusing them of notions they have around business planning and things like that. Um, we say, okay, we're going to have a sales challenge today. And we kind of part the curtain and every single team, usually we have 12 to 15 teams. Every single team has a jug of country time lemonade powder, um, a plastic pitcher, a couple of sleeves of red solo cups, and a couple of bags of ice. And we say, you have the next hour to sell as much of this lemonade as you possibly can. The winner by dollars collected at the end of the hour takes all. And David, you'd be astounded. It's already crazy amazing, but this feels like, <laughs> I, 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 did, I thought it would be cool, but I didn't think it'd be this cool. But yes, tell me what happens there. Inevitably, there are, and we've kind of, we've, we've tried to design around this. There are people who sell $20, $30, $40, $50, and that's, they're the losers. Then there are people who, due to realizations that they have once their kind of product hits the market, sell 700 $800, $1,000 because they start learning as they go into the market. And the, and there's a bunch of lessons that come out of that, but routinely the winning team will collect, you know, $1,500 or $2,000 from the rest of the class we, after an hour of work. And then, I mean, so there's so many amazing lessons, but one of them is we have everybody write down their sales of lemonade in the last hour. And we put it next to the figure of their, their sales of their startup for the last five weeks. Most of the time, they've sold more lemonade in the last hour, a product they don't care about, 
to a customer they don't care about with an absurd deadline, right? They sold more of that than they have of this thing that they're supposedly going to devote their life to, a problem that they believe must be solved. And for a lot of people, that is a startling realization. I just sold more lemonade in an hour than I've sold of my product. Um, and then, so that that's kind of realization number one. There are a bunch of unfolding realizations and it's always a little bit different. So as a teaching team, we've got to be fluid and flexible to allow some learnings to emerge, you know, um, but there are, there are a handful of learning lessons that typically emerge and then we're able to talk about a sales. What do we mean when we're selling? What is the sales mindset? How do you click into that mindset and just it's a fundamental shift for most people. And they've been, what they realize is they've been kind of soft pedaling their product. They don't really want to give it everything they got yet because they're trying to make it a little bit more perfect. And really, you know, one of, you know, Perry, uh, my co-instructor, co-author, one of his famous sayings is don't get ready, get started. And what they realize is they've been getting ready in the context of the four weeks. But when we gave them an hour long challenge, they just got started. I'm assuming that like, wow, okay, now I'm in a mode where I have to learn. I have to do some pattern recognition. I have to think categorically. I have to get bird's eye view. I have to understand like just the nature of this aspect of human interaction and getting out of the thing. I know this from writing, like when you write a book, like you, the whole world is that book. And you start thinking that that book explains everything, explains everything. Yeah. You don't, uh, it's hard to take a step out of it into some other place where you could imagine I could have written this about any, I could have written anything. I could have written this about anything. And it's hard to see like the way that books are written, you know? And there's also the, this reminds me of that whole uh, Jungian concept of when you learn the rules of a game, you also learn that games have rules, that very meta cognition, meta learning thing that takes right. place. Right. I love the idea that this course is offering that because you're not really learning how to sell lemonade, of course, but that you're learning that the game has rules. I mean, the last thing I'd say about that, I mean, we can talk about whatever you want, but the thing that's interesting too is because they're learning in parallel, you know, you've got 12 to 15 teams learning in parallel. Some people experience failure while others experience success. And so their data points, if you think about the data that you're gathering as a student or as a founder in this case, it's not just from what you're doing. It's also from what other people are doing. So there's kind of this exponential learning curve. If you get everybody bought into working in a certain way, sharing vulnerably in a certain way, giving and receiving feedback in a certain way, it's just, it's a real kind of uh, rocket ride for a lot of students because the learning is so accelerated. That's so rad. I, we're going to talk about your book, I promise. This is, and I want to bridge to what we just talked about through the Einstellung, if I'm saying it properly, which I'm not uh, affected. But before that, I, I, I think as someone who's listening to this and they're like, okay, I've gotten an introduction to this guy. I've heard all these things he just said. Uh, sounds like a pretty cool teacher at a pretty cool place. Um, how in the world did you get into all this? Like, how did you arrive in the world of teaching people these really cool things? Yeah. You know, it was, my life got derailed. Basically I was in business school at Stanford 2007 to 2009. And through kind of an unexpected circumstance, I ended up working at a startup summer 2008 in Delhi, India, just outside of Delhi in Noida. And uh, which is now kind of a big town. It wasn't when I was there. And the, I was there to do business development, work in spreadsheets. I'm a typical MBA financial analyst, but there are some amazing product designers doing amazing work to, to help lift folks out of poverty and to really make a meaningful difference in their lives. And I started kind of poking my head in there, getting curious about what they were doing. And they told me I was de-schooly. And I said, you know, I thought that was an insult. I said, you're de-schooly, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> And uh, no, it turns out they said, no, 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 you're the kind of person who would enjoy this, this way of approaching problems. You should go to the D school when you go back to Stanford. 
And so my second year at Stanford as a student, I spent a bunch of my elective units at the D school. And I really resonated with the people and the culture and methodology, et cetera. And at the end of my year, they basically, uh, a couple of the founders said, hey, we've got this one-year faculty development program that we feel you'd be a really good fit for. It's mm-hmm. one year, and then you can get back to the rest of your life. And so in the fall of 2009, I supposedly started the one-year program, which now 13 years later is continuing. <laughs> uh, but that, that was the start of it. And then I just kind of found my way through different opportunities and uh, collaborators and, yeah. and projects over the last 13 years. Oh, that's great. I'm glad that this you're the perfect vehicle to get this into a book. Um, and full disclosure, I'm always very skeptical of business books of any kind, especially ones that have like a real punchy title like yours, Idea Flow. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. Like this is how yes. there's a, you know. Um, but no, the, your book is not that. Your book is comes from this experience that you've had. And it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I love, there's no zealot like a convert, right? So like mm-hmm. I prefer people who the idea is, is insisting upon itself. It's burning a hole through your, your shirt every day. Cause it's, your heart is exploding. And this is you, my experience in knowing you and meeting you and, sp- and spending time with you and doing other projects with you. Yeah. That's who you are actually. And that's, that's the book you want to read. Uh, Thanks. And it's, it is good. I'm, I'm fully uh, endorsing it here before we begin talking about it. Okay, we're going to go walk across a bridge from that segment to this segment. Uh, and that bridge is made out of the Einstellung effect. I, we, you were just talking about it. And it's just like, uh, you, we actually kind of been talking about it already. Before, without me walking all over this, uh, let, lead us across the bridge. What, what in the world is this thing? And why would we want to talk about it in this conversation? Yeah. Well, there, the reason that few of us break through is because we have a profound misunderstanding of creativity. We have a profound misunderstanding of the way that problems get solved. And so if you write a book about breaking through and about problem solving, you become painfully acutely aware of the cognitive biases that hold us back. And uh, one of my favorite definitions of creativity comes from a seventh grader in Ohio. You'll love this. Her teacher asked, what is creativity? And she had everybody put post-its up on the wall. And one girl, and this, this student sent, or the teacher sent one of my friends a photo of it, and she shared it with me. And the, the definition that I love, she said, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's perfect in so that's many good, ways. I'm typing it out. That's great. <laughs> right? How yeah. good is that? Doing more than the first thing you think of. And, you know, not only is it eloquent and beautiful, but it also speaks to this profound cognitive bias, this Einstein effect, or however you say it. I like to think of the Einstein effect as the anti-Einstein effect because of (laughs) phonetic resemblance to a certain breakthrough thinker. But basically, the Einstein effect, I think, first identified by Abraham Luchens in 1942, subsequently validated by people like Carl Dunker and researchers at Oxford more recently. The basic premise, as I understand it, is, is that when we when we identify a solution to a problem, two things happen. One, we cease the search for other solutions. And two, we are blinded to potentially better solutions. That is a fascinating cognitive bias. If you take as a, as a definition that creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. Because we could take those two things together, right? The seventh graders definition of creativity and the Einstein effect. We could basically say creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And that's really counterintuitive to human beings, which is to say creativity is totally counterintuitive. Yeah. And so, yeah, I love, I love learning about that bias and I love exploring the implications of it. This is all great. This is, and 
clearly we don't know enough about the brain yet to, to pin all this down, but in the space that we do know, it, there's clearly something cognitive happening here. If we get down to source code neurons, we'll figure it out one day, but this is emerge something from that space emerges as a couple of interesting biases. So this is one, it's similar to just confirmation bias in that you see a pattern, you have a hypothesis as to what explains it. When you put forth that hypothesis and you get information that seems to confirm that that is the answer, you stop looking for more information. In psychology, they call it the makes sense stopping rule, which is one of the worst named anythings. And they couldn't they have found a German word for that. I don't, no, I love it. That's great. It makes sense to stop. Well, it's like hill climbing, right? They're all related. The, mm-hmm. But the challenge is the problems we're facing today, as we talked about earlier, even with the D school, the problems we face today don't have one right answer. You know, they have, I mean, think about what should you title this podcast episode, right? I don't know if you title your episodes by individual po- episode, right? But there's a thousand plausible titles. Which one's the best? And what we do to your point, like uh, makes sense stopping. Well, I think of a good one. And we go, that's good enough. And we move on, right? It's called also known as satisficing, but we don't think, is that the best one? Are there other ones, right? And that's all, so it's all related to this idea of if we're ultimately trying to deploy the best answer, then we have to realize, and this kind of gets to some of the other research in the book, quantity is the, is the biggest variable that determines quality. So if I want to get a good idea, I should focus on coming up with more ideas. And there's no empirical evidence that suggests that the first idea I think of is my best idea. And yet my tendency is to settle on it. And I basically leave all of this amazing potential on the table because I've moved on. It's It's got to be something related to accommodate, assimilation and accommodation. Whereas you, uh, it, obviously, as we're trying to make sense of the world, creating this, these schemas and models of reality, it starts to be like, okay, when I do this, I get this. When I, when I experience this, this is what happens next. And you eventually have a pretty robust idea of what to do from situation to situation. It's very cognitively expensive in a previous evolutionary environment to keep hypothesis testing when you could just go with what seems to be working uh, when time is of the essence and food is not available. And that's why this whole, the whole very idea of science being, what if we tried to disconfirm our, our assumptions sounds very similar to what if, okay, I, I have this idea, but what if, you know, just for shits and giggles, what if we tried about 20 more ideas? Like, right. yeah, that's how you make good things happen. It's also how you like put, pull the lever inside your head and go, I'm not going to go with all this, uh, automaticity of human cognition. I'm going to actually make an executive decision here to do things that my body is asking me not to do, which is really yes. incredible. I love that you can apply this to anything. And this is where, this is where your book sort of, you know, begins or this sort of the, the engine that drives it. I love the, um, you know, like a, as a, as by way of a illustration, I think this is a perfect illustration. I don't know. Are you familiar with this photography professor in Florida named Jerry Yulsman? Have you heard this story? I don't He's think one so. of Ansel Adams's assistants. Okay. And he's a well-known photographer. He teaches at Florida. Um, as an experiment, he told his photography class, he divided them in half. And he basically said to the class, at the end of the semester, I'm going to have a jury come in and evaluate your work. And here's the grading criteria. For half of you, you have to turn in a spectacular image. Okay, To get an A, it's got to be world-class image. Okay, And f- these photographers will judge its merits, et cetera. To get a B, it's got to be very, very good to get a C, et cetera. But you only have to turn in one. But it's got it. But all of the weight is on the quality of this image. 
The other half of the class, he said, all right, the grading criteria for you all has nothing to do with quality. It has only to do with how many photos you turn in. If you turn in more than 100 photos, it doesn't matter how bad they are, you're going to get an A. If you turn in more than 90, it doesn't matter how bad they are, you're going to get a B, right, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the semester, the, the submissions come in, the jury evaluates them, and two striking occurrences happen. They won't be striking to those of us who are thinking backwards, like uh, with cognitive bias at play, right? But the first is there wasn't a single A in the group that was assigned make a world-class photo. Not a single A. Nobody did it, right? The second surprising finding is there were many A caliber photos in the group that was assigned make 100 photos, right? And to me, it just perfectly illustrates the point. You think like a student at some point goes, I did it. I got a good one, right? Who knows? I mean, if they're like me, they probably waited till the last day procrastinating. <laughs> but there are also students who maybe, you know, a week into the semester, they take what they think is a perfect photo. The goal is take one perfect photo. Why bother? I'm done. Man, I, I like all of a sudden, I'm only taking nine units, not 12. Mm -hmm. This is great, right? And there's all of these biases that come to play. And the reality is if you want to get really great and you can almost in, fill in the blank for photo and this, that's a metaphor, right? You want to get, you know, like um, Linus Pauling, the chemist said, if you want to have a good idea, you need to have a lot of ideas. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about chemistry, right? But this, the point is the same. You want to have a good photo or a good idea or a good paper or whatever, have a lot of them. And that is, and, and that's actually to your point about executive function. What I love is, that's something that we can control. We can actually short circuit the Einstein effect by telling ourselves the goal isn't quality, the goal is quantity. We actually can hack ourselves to better quality by focusing on quantity instead. We will return to the program, our interview with Jeremy Utley, right after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just 
fill out a brief questionnaire, and you will get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. 
I, I understand why it's so easy to to miss out on this because uh, from our end, from the audience's perspective, we tend to only see the people who have survived this rigorous process of generating tons and tons of ideas. All the things that this obviously is survivorship us, but everything is everything that's failed it just goes away. Every restaurant that didn't make it is replaced by something else. Every app that didn't make enough money is not one that I'm ever going to download. So the only things that are examples of doing stuff are the ones that are surviving this incredibly difficult process. And it right. feels like, wow, those people are just came up like who, who that person came up with a really amazing idea and stuck to it. I guarantee you every one of those was came out of some sort of either group of people or individual who was failing constantly and routinely and threw ideas everywhere and was able to abandon things early on or midway through before it ruined them and just went at it. I, that's why I love this whole book. I love this concept. I love the D school I love everything that I've found here. Thank you for introducing me to these things. Let me talk about some stuff in here. This, I think we were on this topic already about uh, quantity creates quality. And uh, I like this from your book, the, uh, you can't tell if an idea is good or bad until you try it out. Like, I am surrounded by people and, and work in worlds where people have a lot of good ideas sitting in their notebooks, a lot of good ideas in a Word document somewhere, a lot of good ideas they share every single time you get a chance to meet them and have a coffee. And they just those ideas are just collecting dust. They're, they're, they're vines sure. growing around them. Uh, and I urge them, like, you got to, that might be the dumbest thing you've ever come up with, but you don't know yet. What is your advice to a person who's in that situation? Who's there's, I think an idea can sit inside you long, for long enough that you become terrified to let it die. And yeah. which, and by, and in so doing you expedite its death. What, what do we do with this? Well, for us, I mean, good or bad doesn't enter into the equation. I mean, the first thing is more, you know um, I mean, it's, I, I can't tell you the number of times we, you know, we do a lot of work with organizations and we kind of say, okay, we'll do a simple assessment in the beginning. Hey, we can help you do two things. We can help you come up with a lot of ideas or we can help you figure out which of your ideas are good ones. Which one do you want to start with? Almost every organization says, oh, we have tons of ideas. Let's do the figure out which ones are good. We go, great. We do one cycle through that. You know what they realize? We don't have any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> which is So, which is to say, it's like, the thing, as long as you don't do anything, you can delude yourself that I have good ideas if I ever get around to them. The moment you start doing, you realize, oh my goodness, I need more ideas, right? So the first, you know, whenever anyone asks, how do I know if I have a good idea or not? I say the one, it doesn't matter. You need more. And then two, if you want to learn, don't judge a priori, commission scrappy experiments, do simple things, you know, and it can be, it depends on your context. Right. But I mean, I talked to Dan Pink about his writing process. Mm -hmm. He said he mentions ideas at dinner parties. He just casually mentions them and see, does this get engagement? Dan and I have had the head of, I've talked, we, we do, we do very similar things. And so does uh, a lot of, I know a lot of fiction writers who that's their secret technique too. They're like, so I was thinking about this thing and. And just see if people resonate with it. Right. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, or, you know, I've got an idea for a, a, a cardboard, uh, you know, pickup service. Amazon boxes are driving me crazy, right? Well, that idea is sitting there gathering dust because I'm not actually committed to making it happen. But suppose I told myself, Jeremy, see if there's anything there. You know, well, you go, okay, what do I do? How do I, you know, start a cardboard pickup service? Well, how about you put door hangers on, you know, my neighborhood doors 
and just say, tired of your cardboard, you know, call this number, put my actual number on it, text this number, and it'll be picked up within 15 minutes, day or night. Right. Does any, and then the, you go, and, and what most people do is they go, well, I couldn't possibly pick up all the cardboard. And, and you know what I say? You're assuming everybody wants you to pick up their cardboard, right? And so what you want to do is just test these fundamental hypotheses. I don't have capacity to do all that. If the entire neighborhood wants me to pick up my, you know, their cardboard, I'm bankrupt. And the thing is, I've never seen an idea that just takes off from the get perfectly, you know? No, of course. And so if you test the fundamental uh, hypothesis, whatever that might be, I mean, what would it take for me to actually make door hangers? And put my phone number on them and hang them around my, you know, I've got four children, right? That's like a little army of, they, they go, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. But it's, it's, it's <laughs> you easy. Thought, you considered it. It was an idea. You let it out. You told it to me and it died right there. <laughs> it, I considered it. Yeah. <laughs> it may have died. No, but it wouldn't be hard, right? And by the way, if I know the denominator, meaning I say, I hung 200 of these door hangers. Now the question is, well, how many texts do I get? Is two over 200 good? Is 20 over 200 good? I could tell myself, hey, unless 10% of people write me, then I, or, you know, text me, then I know it's not worth it. Okay, well, now I have actually some data, right? But the point is, it's a very simple experiment to take the next step. And a lot of the book, you, as you know, probably three chapters are dedicated to how do we make experiments cheaper, faster, scrappier, and give you better data? Because as long as it costs, a quote unquote, costs a lot of money to experiment, you can't experiment. But when you realize experimentation is incredibly cheap, actually, there's really clever ways to hack a scrappy experiment. All of a sudden, data starts becoming cheaper. And then you run out of excuses. And the reality is, which is fine, I don't care. Like the reason I haven't done that, even though I know it'd be easy to do is I actually don't care enough to do it. I don't want to start a cardboard collection business, right? That's the bottom line. And I can, t I can think about the idea. I can wish somebody else would do it, whatever. But the fundamental thing is care. And a lot of people, I think, want, they, they kind of comfort themselves with, man, I have so many great business ideas in me. Well, wait till there's one that's irresistible. And then when you find that one, do something scrappy and be ready to iterate and pivot and adjust. Don't assume it's going to be perfect right out of the gate. That's great. I, 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 had, I suffered from this myself. I'm not going to pretend I... I had an idea for a podcast. I wanted to call it Things We Know We Don't, which was be about known unknowns in science because I used to love those old like uh, unsolved mysteries and search of things back in the day. And I wanted to have it that, like that, but we would talk about actual things that you would think that scientists would know by now, but we don't. I love it. I just hit subscribe, by the way, just right now. I just hit subscribe on your podcast. Uh, why, do you, why do human beings have, uh, why aren't we covered in hair? Why do we have hair just up here? You would think that would be, we'd have, you'd think I could go look that up on Google and get the answer. This is an unknown. And I was like, I just want to show where you would be surprised to learn that some things are still unknown. I sat on that idea for five years and then Vox, like over the pandemic, put out unexplained. It's the exact no. same concept. And there's no guarantee. If I had put it out, it might have failed. It might not have been good. It might have been a bad idea. Uh, but I will forever, uh, you know, beat myself up for not at least 
trying to see what people would think of something like that. Um, wow. So yeah, don't do that, y'all. Just try it. If there's something, by the way, as, as a general rule in life, if there's something that you'd kick yourself forever having not explored, it's probably good evidence that you should give it a try. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm doing, that's why the genius thing is like, no, no, no. I, I, it's It's been in my head as long as the other thing. I just best basically picked one or the other. You call you, I think we've been talking all around it, but like, it'd probably be a good idea to say, why did you name this book Idea Flow? Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of factors there, but the basic gist is flow. The movement of ideas really matters. And you can think about, you know, the, the famous book of flow, the psychology of kind of optimal performance. So there's a flow aspect to it. There's also kind of phonetic resemblance to deal flow, cash flow, et cetera. Right. So it's kind of a business term, but the notion of a measurable metric around creativity, you know, you think about food deserts in the U S right. Or areas where there's no fresh food, right. And, you know, maybe there's convenience stores, liquor stores, but there's no fresh food. I would say the area of creativity and innovation is mostly a data desert for organizations. If I asked you, you know, if you're a middle manager in an organization, how many ideas has your team had? You'd like, uh, <laughs> you pretend you're a zoom freezes, right? I can't even, I cannot about, right. about every place I no went before I started doing this, where I can't, can't imagine a consultant coming in and saying, how many ideas do you, have you guys had lately? What is this question? This question is meaningless. Yeah. And I mean, and there's so many layers to that, right? But if you think about, I mean, most organizations talk about innovation, it's this hugely hyped thing, right? And the, every organization's annual report, they talk about innovations, one of their seven pillars and whatever, right? But you think about how do you measure it? I mean, even I was working with a global bank the other day and they said, yeah, we know how many ideas we've got. And then they showed me this internal database that actually I would say it's probably better than 90% of stuff I've seen. But what I said to them, I said, respectfully, these are the ideas that people thought were good enough to submit to the company. <laughs> That's good. That's, That's not, great. this isn't how many ideas you've had. This is how many ideas that are good enough to not face public shaming, right? which is a huge difference, right? And the, the thing is, if you think about the, just to go on an aside, let's get back to the question in just a second, because I'll, I'll get there. But if you think about distribution of ideas as a normal distribution, right? Like all natural phenomena, ideas are distributed na uh, normally. That means a very small percentage are kind of totally delightful, right? The vast majority are ordinary in nature. And then there's what Steve Jobs called dopey, right? And that, I like that word because Johnny Ive at his memorial service was saying of Steve that they would regularly eat lunch and he said, you know what Steve would say to me? He'd say, hey, Johnny, want to hear a dopey idea? And John, and what John, Sir Johnny I have said is most of the time they were really dopey. Sometimes they were truly terrible. But every once in a while, they take the air out of the room and leave us breathless in wonder, right? And to me, this is actually, this is so phenomenally important. When I, if we were to flash an image of Steve Jobs up for listeners to, you know, see right now on their phones, nobody's thinking that dope. What an idiot. You know, it's, I mean, you might think all sorts of things, right? But you don't think idiot. And yet you think of disrupting industries and redefining categories and customer delight. And yet, though, if you think about how he got there, he got there by routinely sharing what he thought to be dopey ideas with one of the smartest designers in the world. And to me, it's that distribution is critical. I, everywhere I go in the world, I say, you know, people ask me, well, it doesn't matter. There's lots of cultural differences in the world, obviously, right? But it goes without saying Japan is very different from Israel, is very different from Cleveland, Ohio. And yet, despite cultural differences, there's one thing I've noticed in common. Anywhere I go, if, I, if folks say, hey, what are you going to teach us? I say, I'm going to teach you how to come up with ideas. 
I get the same universal response. Do you know what it is? No. Universal. No, what could it be? How do you come up with a good idea? <laughs> I say, well, who said anything about good? I didn't say I was going to help you come up with good ideas, right? But everyone, when we think of I, the, 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 the concept of ideas is inseparable from, an, from a, a quality aspect. And what great thinkers know is you got you to embrace the whole variation. Yes. This idea of throwing, of just becoming a fountain of garbage is really difficult. To, <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, it's all the authors I know who they've figured out a path to like put out material, like they've figured out the garbage fountain is, is where it comes from. Like, let me just keep drinking. Let, let me get another cup of garbage. And, uh, like you, you have to have this. And it is really difficult because as an audience member, before you before you get up on stage, it just feels like, like it feels like Steve Jobs woke up every day. It was like, oh, here we go, iPhone. Blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Let me think. Oh, I've got an idea. What is it? Up, oh, Apple Watch. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, let me think. Uh, like not not the massive amounts of garbage that he was telling uh, Ives over over lunch every day. He's like, I've got an idea. Yeah. Gloves that only tell time. <laughs> and here's here's the thing. What, getting back to this question that you ask of why do we call it idea flow? That's idea flow. Allowing ideas almost as it were to channel through. You're the channel. You're the vehicle. They're, they're passing through you, right? And your job is not to stopper them or stifle them. It's just to let them happen. And bad ones find their way to the garbage can, right? As long as you don't prevent them, right? And good ones find their way to broader exposure. But the point is, what we don't advocate is idea pond, right? Which is kind of what you describe with that notebook collecting dust. It's like, <laughs> I have all these ideas in a reservoir and whenever I finally get a moment, I'm going to unleash them. No, it's actually flow. It's, it's share them, experiment out there. It's flow. It's like, you know, to use a metaphor, it's like the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. They're both fed by the same source, but the Dead Sea is dead. There's no life. Sea of Galilee is one of the most biodiverse regions in the world, right? What's the difference? The Sea of Galilee has an outlet. So the flow is actually essential. And so good. for us, that. that's what that's what so many people miss is they think, I've just got to wait till I have the perfect thing. That's not how nobody goes from having nothing to having the perfect thing. Right. I feel hey, do you watch Shark Tank? I, I meant to ask this earlier. I, I'm familiar. I've seen it a few times. I'm not a regular. I, I felt like I was listening to this. I'm like, he will either watch that all the time and just because it's like massive schadenfreude for you. Like <laughs> if only these people had gone to the D school, if only these people had read my book, if only if I could just sit down with these people for 10 minutes or you're like, no, 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 I'm not watching that. That's you guys just are ruining. Like you're further polluting how people think this works. Um, I do. I, I do enjoy that in hotel rooms. It's always playing and it's, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's bad. 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 Whoa, whoa. A peanut butter pump. That's that sounds stupid, but I'm watching you sell the shit out of this. You screw a thing on top of peanut butter jars, and it turns it into like hand soap. And it reminds me in in, in uh, the book you talk about how there's uh, any idea is just a connection between two things already in your head, right? And those those connections could be dumb. Like you could be like, okay, skateboards and broccoli. Let me think here. But the but it's a reward system for children. That's great. You get more time on your skateboard. The more broccoli you eat. Oh, uh, see, just well, listen to the professional at work. The the but I'm sure this guy with a Shark Tank was like looking at his peanut butter, couldn't get the last bit out, 
and then went over to wash his hands. It was like, ah, and then he put yes. them together and the guy yeah. really got funding. It's, it's a real product that we will essentially eventually see in the store. Well, okay. So you're kind of getting to something, I mean, uh, not to get too specific, but if people are listening, thinking, okay, what does this look like practically? What you, the example you just gave is perfect, which is basically what you just described just to be explicit about it is two things. One is cultivate an awareness of problems. The guy at the peanut butter jar going, this is stupid. I just can't scrape out the last thing. If you become aware of problems, that is a really, really great practice, right? Just, we've, you know, since the 1960s, professors at Stanford have advocated for what's called a bug list. This is long before software development, right? We're not talking about errors and lines of code. We're talking about a list of things that bug you, annoyances, bothers. So the peanut butter is perfect example. So that's one thing. The second thing is look for connections. It's very simple. But what's what's fascinating, if you look at, for example, there's this famous study that you're probably familiar with called Dunker's radiation problem. And basically what that, it, it's, a, it's an insight problem that a very, very small percentage of the population can solve by itself. So, so you've got a patient, this is the rough approximation. You've got a patient that comes in with an inoperable tumor. There is a novel therapy, but it's highly dangerous because uh, if you use the x-ray uh, at a certain dosage, it, while it will kill the tumor, it will also kill the healthy cells around. However, at a lower dosage, the healthy cells will still live, but it's not effective to kill the tumor. How do you treat the tumor? thought I would offer you some thinking music if you would like to try to answer this question in your mind, on paper, something before we go back to the answer. Enjoy. Well, so typically at this point, roughly 10% of you have solved the problem, right? So if you've solved the problem, you're, you're an exceptional minority. Very few people can solve the problem. Now, suppose I told you, um, just while you're thinking about the challenge of the radiation problem, suppose I gave you, a, you know, a, another story. I'm going to tell you a story about a fire chief, a town fire chief who heard that there was a, a, a raging fire in the village. And, um, and the, the community members were kind of uh, shuttling buckets of water from the local river, but it was not helping. And then the fire chief had an idea. He said, wait, everybody get a bucket. Let's surround the, the shed. And then we'll all throw water on the count of three. One, two, three. Everybody threw water at once, put out the fire, and the town hailed him as a hero. Okay. So that's just interesting, right? Um, I'll tell you another story. There's a story about a, uh, a king whose castle was under siege and uh, or the enemy's, you know, uh, you know, fortress was was uh, protected by mines all around the uh, the fortress. The king knew that if the, that if his army took any one road, they would be sure to be blown up because the mines are too sensitive. Um, but the king had an idea. What if we all what if we surround the fortress and then we'd send a few men down each road that aren't enough to trigger the mines. We could capture the fortress. And they did it. And the king was hailed as a brilliant, you know, kind of strategist. 
So at this point, what Carl Dunker uh, found was about 50% of people, if they think back to the radiation challenge, they've solved it. They've had like an aha while I'm telling these stories, right? Maybe it's because of time. Maybe it's because of something else. But then here's the thing. Dunker found that if he said, do the fire chief or the king have any bearing upon your challenge as a surgeon operating on this tumor? All of a sudden, something like 90% of people can solve the problem. Explain how that, why that is so, sir. Analogies hold a wealth of information to the person who's looking to extract it. And so getting back to my point, you, we, I was just talking about how to make this, you know, get the peanut butter jar and the soap. The only reason a soap, you know, pump speaks to an innovator is because they're irritated with the peanut butter and they're one and two, they're looking for connections. And Dunker's radiation problem demonstrates that those who are looking to make connections find them in very unlikely and unexpected places. But that's it. Those are habits that every individual can, you know, if you want to increase your idea flows, so to speak, how do you do it? A couple simple things, keep a bug list and then look for connections between things that you see and encounter in the world. And just like the peanut butter, um, you know, uh, you know, founder, you know, the peanut butter, like heir, right. To the peanut butter fortune. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is a woman named Bette Nesmith Graham, true story in the mid 1950s. She's a typist at uh, Texas Bank and Trust. She's a single mother whose son went on to start the monkeys, by the way, if you want to know famous factoid there, her son you know, started the, the band, the monkeys, but she's a typist at Texas Bank and Trust, constantly frustrated by her typewriter, which is leaving smudges on the page. And so she's a typist. She should be spending most of her day typing. And yet she finds she's spending most of her day erasing smudges. It's driving her crazy. Well, she's also a single mother. And so she's trying to make ends meet. She's picking up goofy side hustles and odd weekend jobs to make ends meet. One weekend, she's working at a department store, painting a window display. And she made a mistake and she took a straight edge razor. She's trying to scrape it off the window. And the painter came over and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? And she said, oh, I, I just made a mistake. I was trying to erase it. And he said something that would change her life, would change all of our lives. He said, bet. Painters don't erase mistakes. Painters paint over their mistakes. And she went on to found liquid paper, <laughs> which solved the problem she had been experiencing at her typist desk mm -hmm. because of an insight that she found while working a weekend job, right? So, good. This, so it's the bug list and it's looking for inspiration. I mean, and that's not to say, by the way, that, that it's done, right? She. Famously, she worked with her son's high school chemistry teacher to concoct a formula. Okay, so it's not to say there's not a lot of work involved. She gets oh, yeah. to the paint store. She's got to do all the work. But the fundamental insight, what if I painted over the errors led to a true breakthrough? And this is what's happening when we're generating ideas. All we're doing is we're connecting things. Mm -hmm. You know who, who comes up with more ideas? Somebody who tries on more connections, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. It's that simple. First of all, it should be clear to anyone, you should buy the book. Like, this is just a book that you should have on your shelf. I, this, the way I feel about this is uh, this is one of those handbooks you should have lying around. And if, you're, if you run things, if you're in a business, look at this. It exists. It's on paper. If, you're, if you just run things at any, if you're a person who's in the charge of running things in a place, uh, you should, ha like, know this stuff. And 
you're not going to get all of it from this interview. We've talked through a lot of things that that I had written notes out to talk about, but the and just sort of made our way through them. But one of the things I had mentioned here that you uh, talk about is uh, just remote work in general. Um, there's plenty to be said about remote work. Clearly, some of us can't help but be remote workers. How does this play into the concept of creating idea flow, though? How does it affect it? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic. It's one that we've actually spent a lot of time thinking about recently because, you know, right now the pandemic or remote work is being blamed for a stagnation of innovation, stagnation of creativity. And so the thinking goes, like, if we only had more water cooler moments, then we would have more serendipity. We'd have more creativity. and yet. You know, if I asked you, one, there's there's no evidence that water cooler moments really moments really exist for the benefit. <laughs> by the way, that's true. So, I never really thought about. It. We haven't done that's been debunked. Into that, that's great. It's uh, been debunked. But furthermore, debunked. furthermore, you know, if if I say, hey, want to meet me in the conference room for a brainstorm? You know, most you know, cue eye rolls, right? Most people don't think, ooh, yay, finally get back in the conference room, right? That's kind of where creativity goes to die. So you think, okay. The pandemic, we've seen a stagnation in innovation and creativity, but getting back to the office doesn't seem on first blush to provide the answer or hold the answer. What gives? What we would say is that the remote environment, there are kind of antiquated expectations around the definition of work, meaning when I'm at home, work or, you know, at remotely working, that's funny working remotely or remotely working, Uh, (laughs) not even remotely working. Um, But it's easy to think of the computer as where my work happens, right? I'm on a Zoom call, I'm in the spreadsheet, I'm on my email, et cetera. And yet what we know to be true is imagination is triggered by unexpected inputs, by fresh things. And you know what's amazing about your and my remote environments right now? If you and I both look to the left, just literally look to the left, we are in radically different environments with radically different inputs readily available at our disposal. This, right? this is true. If I, I look a... to the right, the same thing is true, right? I get like all of a sudden I have all these inputs, right? If we're both in the conference room, that's actually not true, which is to say what? The remote environment affords us an opportunity for, for immensely more unexpected input, but it requires that I'm willing to look away from the screen. It requires that I'm willing to go on a walk and call it work or play catch and call it work or read a book and call it work. And as long as my definition of work is exceedingly exceptionally narrow in terms of how long it takes me to respond to a Slack message, how much of the time my camera's on, right? Isn't it messed up? I was just thinking this the other day. I was on a remote meeting. Every time I looked down to take notes, I felt self-conscious because I was afraid that my teammates would think I was not paying attention. Oh yeah, all the time. Because I, I have my notes sitting next to the window because I used to put them on my second screen and I'll be uh-huh. doing this and be like, and I'm like, this person right now thinks I'm not listening to them. They think this right. is very rude. This is very rude. Even though you're actually totally dialed in and paying attention. Yeah, right? that's all, so, all I can hear. <laughs> there's deep, there's deep-seated assumptions and beliefs that affect kind of what productivity looks like, what efficiency looks like. And it's really easy to orient around efficiency. So what we've seen, at least in the early days of the pandemic, is productivity increased. It's kind of since stalled for a number of reasons. But efficiency is not really the aim of innovative work. Effectiveness ought to be our aim. And what is effective actually doesn't always feel efficient. You know, my favorite example is, uh, my favorite quote on this topic is, 
Amos Tursky, Danny Kahneman's partner, you know, they, they illuminated our understanding of many of these counterintuitive concepts through a series of wildly inventive experiments. You can think about their work output as these wildly inventive experiments that are legendary. And someone asked Tursky once, how do you and Danny come up with such clever experiments? And here's what Tursky said. He said, the secret to doing good research, but again, you can take that word research and plug in your own purview. The secret to doing good podcasting, the secret to doing good teaching or whatever it might be, is to always be underemployed. You waste years by not being able to waste hours. And to me, there's something so significant to that statement of wasting hours. What he was referring to is the fact that he and Kahneman would take these long ambling walks around Hebrew University where they were rising stars in Jerusalem, and they'd be laughing, they'd be having a good time together. And in their department, you can imagine they might've been derided. You know, those guys aren't working. And what they're doing is they're reinventing the field of psychology and economics. Yeah, yeah. but one of them is going to win a, a Nobel. This is this what that's what's that's what's happening here. And they look like they're wasting time, right? Which is to say, effectiveness at creative work is very different from what it looks like to be efficient in the course of the normal day to day. I think in the remote environment, we have a unique opportunity to grow in our effectiveness but it requires redefining some of these words around productivity and professionalism. Okay. The, the, as our time comes to a close, the last thing I'm going to ask you about is, uh, but I'm not asking it now is just in general, you know, how someone who's like, I think I want to buy this book. Uh, I think I want to hire this guy to consult. I think I want to know everything about him. Like just some sort of generalities about how to create this idea space. Uh, but the, before that, there's one, one particular thing, which is, uh, Log jabs. Uh, <laughs> you talk about it in the book. Um, this uh, this is another thing I think people feel a little skeptical about when they hear this. Uh, if one is the you know I've got all these good ideas in a notebook and I haven't put them out there, blah blah blah. But the other thing is the yeah yeah yeah. I I try to think of good stuff and then I just kind of get stuck. Uh, or I'm being tasked by my employers to like hey. Um, we're putting you in charge of this thing. Could you come up with like five good ideas by the end of the month, blah, blah, blah. It'll be really about innovation here at such and such. And you're just like, you get the business version of writer's block. We're just like, right. I, right. I, I thought right. I knew, I thought I had this. And then the second you tasked me with it, I'm like, well, I forgot. I forgot. And I've experienced this as a writer many times where I sit down and go, I have forgotten how to write. I have no idea how to write. I do not <laughs> remember how words work. Shall I speak in? <laughs> um, so what do we do about I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be doing the Substack here soon. And I'm used to doing a podcast uh, every couple of weeks and having tons and tons of stuff in the pipeline. But uh, I sit down, I'm like, what will be my first, what will be my first post on Substack? And I've got plenty of stuff in a list at this point, but I do remember that first two or three days thinking, I have forgotten how to make content of this nature. And what do you do with this? What are your, what's your, um, from the book and from yourself, like, what do we do with this, this log jam, I'm stuck thing that happens? And is it good? Is it bad? Is it weird? Does it make me? Does it make me crazy and stupid? What is it? Uh, all of the above. No, it's <laughs> it's natural. It's natural. This is part of the process. the The point is, though, I think critically, output is a function of input. And in that moment, you go, "What's my output?" And what I would, what we encourage you to do is say, "Well, what's your input?" What kinds of inputs are affecting your thinking, right? And if if you think about it like that, like I, I love what Malcolm Gladwell said one time, I think, uh, who was it? An NYU marketing professor, I can't remember his name right now, but he asked Malcolm Gladwell, you have carte blanche, you have three months 
You can write anything you want. What's your process for coming up with a story? Or what's your, how do you come up with a great idea? And Gladwell said, I don't come up with ideas. I find ideas. He said, I'd go out and I'd start talking to people, right? And, and he kind of described his process. But the, but the point is simple. It's about getting inspiration. You know, when we think of inspiration, especially in business, we think in terms of like those cheesy posters that say courage and it's like a salmon swimming <laughs> into a grizzly's mouth, right? It's like, and that we think that's inspiration. But what creative people know, what designers and artists and others know is that the inputs to your thinking affect the outputs of your thinking. Yeah. And if you want, if, if, if you want good outputs, you have to attend to the quality of your inputs. And what we call inspiration, we, we define it as the disciplined pursuit of new and unexpected input. So if you're going to sit down and go, well, what should I write about? I'd say, well, what are you reading? Right. What are you, what are you enjoying? What, who could, who could you talk to? And a lot of times the output flows once you attend to the input. Absolutely. That's some of the best advice you'll ever get. Anybody listening to this, that I can, I can't tell you how important this is. And it's something a lot of, you have to learn. Uh, it's not, it's something I think that you don't think is true until you get going. A lot of writers will talk about, you know, there's no such thing as you don't like, you cannot wait to, till you have inspiration to write, to start. You can't, um, I, let me, let me rephrase that. You can't wait till you want to write before you start writing. And you also can't wait till you have a fantastic idea either. A lot of times you just got to get something down because even the stuff that you personally have put down out of your head onto the paper becomes a thing that becomes input that makes you start seeing connections and go, whoa, and then you have to get the pump going, right? Yeah. And you can't wait. Your brain's going to be different tomorrow, by the way. Yeah. And the ideas you write down today are going to intersect with your brain differently tomorrow. Yeah. You can't wait for the muse. The, The muse is attracted to the sound of the keyboard, as they say. So the, the, also, this other thing, yeah, you have to have input. I have been stuck so many times. I can tell you this just from recently finishing a book that I was stuck so many times and I would sit down and write like plans of action and and do the thing that I think you see in movies and TV shows where somebody just sits in a, a darkened room and stares at the ceiling until they right. get a good idea. Uh, or, or they stare at a street lamp while smoking a cigarette. And they're like, oh, oh, I got it. Right. I, I'm sure that's happened at least 25 times in human history, but here's what really happens. You watch some movie that has no, no relation to what you're doing. And you have this thought that goes, Oh, Oh my God, that kind of, and you take a little note, the, you read a, a book on something that may be unrelated or related and you get spiral out into something. It's constant. You have to get out of the, the, uh, the muck of the work that you're doing and into another space and then come back and, this is a great, I love the way you put it, the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. It's, and it, here's what's magical. It, it just happens. You need to, all you need to do is keep a notebook in your pocket. You've already got one on your phone. Yes. But I recommend find whatever notebook thing you like most in this world. I keep, I keep, look at these little dudes. Like, yes, he just did the same thing. You better keep a notebook. And I don't care. I can tell you there are so many things in my little notebook that make no sense. Like, like crabs, crabs don't feel remorse or something. And I'm like, why did I write that? So <laughs> here's my, here's my advice to add on top of Jeremy's never take a note that you could hand to a stranger and they would not understand it. Like, just don't do that because I promise you, I've taken a lot of notes that three weeks later I looked at and go, no clue, no uh, clue so- who this person was or what they were thinking. And that was me. Okay. So- <laughs> Let me uh, bring us in for a landing, which is uh, 
we went all over the place with this, but it's a great book that really has like actual like bullet points and things you should do and lots of good advice and definitions and, and concepts that aren't just, isn't this fun to talk about? It's like actually actionable, prescriptive advice. I'm wondering, like, as a, as, it takes a lot of work to write a book. It takes a lot of work to take this world that you've been in and, and put it into a format that somebody could consume who doesn't live in that world. Who do you hope picks this up? Like, what's your best case scenario and what do you hope they get out of it? Yeah, we're, we really want to empower folks who haven't thought of themselves as creative, who maybe don't think of their responsibilities as creative responsibilities, and help them see that the tools that designers use are immensely valuable to their own work, even though they don't think about it as creative work. Our, one of the statements we make in the book is every problem is an idea problem. Meaning tasks, you know, known things that you just got to get done. You just got to do it, right? But if you're facing a problem, problems yield to one thing, which are solutions, a volume of solutions. And if you find that you're stuck on a problem, the best thing you can do is generate a volume of solutions. How do you generate a volume? How do you increase the volume and variation of your solutions? The answer is we wrote a book about that very thing, right? So if you find that you're trying to solve problems and you want to do it more effectively, idea flow is for you. Yeah, I I love how, how bird's eye this gets and how meta this gets, and then it goes up a couple more levels. Not only do you need some sort of space for your employees to make coffee and whatever, you need to, inst- and, and maybe it's nice for them to have a fountain of some kind. I recommend they also in, that you install a garbage fountain in your business so that you can create idea flow. And you have to install it though. This is the thing. You can't just walk in and say, hey, let's get together everybody. I want to have a meeting. This I watched this great YouTube video about uh, creativity. And I think that we just have to be much more creative here. I want to like, you know, really, it's all about innovation, everybody. So let's get out there and do that. No, you have to actually create a system and a dynamic and a cultural space for people to do this. And you have written a book that helps people understand how to create that thing. I love that. I want people to get the book and I want everybody to read it. Honestly, I just want people to get it so everybody does it. I just want more of the places I go to. I want the post office to have read Idea Flow. I want I do want somebody to make the uh, cardboard pickup thing. There are people who made a regular practice or make a regular practice of thinking differently, but these mindsets are available to us all. It's that simple. The mindsets are, there's nothing that makes Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or fill in the blank, you know, whoever, whatever inventive thinker, there's nothing that makes them special other than their way of approaching problems. And that same way of approaching problems is available to all of us. My mom just read the book. She goes, Hey, you shouldn't call this a business book. It's really valuable to me too. And I'm not in business. You know, I I mean, we can't, you can't say it's for everybody. Right. But these mindsets are available to everyone. It's just, it's a matter of switching some of your default biases and getting into the practice. That's what it comes down to. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The guest, that was Jeremy Utley. The book, that is Idea Flow. You can find Jeremy all over the place. Just look for Jeremy Utley most of the time, and that's how you'll find him. That's U-T-L-E-Y. You can find him on LinkedIn and 
on Twitter using Jeremy Utley. You can also go to his blog, which is jeremyutley.design and to the books page, which is ideaflow.design. Links to all that in the show notes, also at youarenotsosmart.com. If you would like to follow this podcast, you can do so on Twitter while Twitter still exists at NotSmartBlog. You can follow me at David McRaney. You can also learn all sorts of new stuff about my new book, How Minds Change, at davidmcraney.com slash howmindschange. Links to that in the show notes as well. You can find a roundtable video with persuasion experts, read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for the newsletter, read reviews, and find links to all sorts of shows that I've been on recently and YouTube channels. So, oh yeah, I'm going to be at the Berkeley Olympic. That's November 18th, 7 p.m. For other ways to get past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, Amazon, Audible, or youarenotsosmart.com. Also follow the whole thing at Facebook slash you are not so smart. You can also support this operation and help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features by going to Patreon. I know I said this many times, but I was writing a book and then promoting it. I'm about to do all sorts of cool stuff. I'm, the first thing I'm going to do this coming week is give out five links to the audiobook for free to patrons. And pitching in any amount will get you the show ad free, but at the higher amounts, more stuff like that starting next week. You can also get posters and t-shirts and sign books and other stuff at the higher levels. All that stuff's getting shipped out as I speak. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. And the easiest way to support the show, tell everyone you know about it. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Future guest, Temple Grandin. Yeah, that's coming up soon. I'm very excited about that. So new stuff every two weeks. And I'll see you the next time that I do a show, which will be in two weeks from now. members save on meeting up with friends save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups that's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier plus members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods plus when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship start a show together with your included paramount plus subscription walmart plus members save on this plus so much more start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com paramount plus essential plan only separate registration required see walmart plus terms and conditions